0: Hello and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. This week, we are slowly, it feels, (laughs) finishing up the 1935 nominees with Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm Susan Araslin.
1: I'm David Daw.
0: And you know, David, we say on this podcast a lot. That this movie was weird. Yeah. But this was the weirdest fucking movie that we've watched.
1: Well, and you know, honestly, like 85% of the weirdness is just all wrapped up with Mickey Rooney. Like there's other weird shit in this film. Like I don't quite understand the like Eliza Rome setting that this movie apparently takes place in.
0: Uh, Yeah, that, that, that's maybe that's a good place to start.
1: Yeah, because it did jump out at me at the very beginning of this film. And by the very beginning of this film, I do, of course, mean 12 minutes into it when a film actually starts after the overture.
0: Yeah, that was brutal. Yeah. Like, why would you include that in the video version?
1: There's so much of this that reminds me of like, because my father was a theater professor. I've been going to like plays my whole life. And like, there's so much of this that when I was a very small child, we were finally just getting this out of our system. And like one is like, this is a super like all about the musical interludes Shakespeare production, which God, that bores the shit out of me. But also like this feels so wrapped up and like you have to sit in your seats for a while before the play begins because that's how plays work. And it's theater. And it's like, no, man, like that, like (laughs) we're in a movie
0: I mean, you know, like maybe, uh, maybe this was like they didn't have previews. There was no newsreel that week.
1: (laughs) What's so insulting about it, too, is that, oh, my God, it's actually just the audio of the first like 10 minutes of the film. The overture just plays over again when the movie actually starts.
0: It was not off to a good start. You know, you mentioned your dad and Midsummer in particular is this is like the one he's directed how many times?
1: Five, I think. Maybe only four. But my dad is a theater professor and among his areas of specialty is is Shakespeare and in Shakespeare Midsummer is is kind of his biggest focus, I would say. And so like I've been to easily two dozen different productions of Midsummer in my life weirdly have never seen this movie before but i know midsummer well enough that all of the tiny changes in this movie to the text of midsummer and we're going to get into it and i'm so sorry listeners
0: yeah i if Dr- you're like <laughs> not a shakespeare nerd or if you're like an anti-shakespeare nerd because those people exist listen to next week's podcast because we're gonna get into it though i have to say like for me i don't know midsummer as well as you do but i would be hard pressed to (laughs) i mean you mentioned the little changes but my god there's so many big
1: ones I am sure. I mean, the basic structure of the thing is basically what it is. Like, you would think that this would be like a Hollywood, like, really take big swings, make the play about, like, something completely different, just like, but, like, usually what it is, is they make these tiny changes or split a scene into two scenes for, like, no reason or throw a line or two from another scene in.
0: Or overlap scenes from the play that don't make any sense.
1: Yeah. And like half the time, it's like you can't, it doesn't, uh, it's so frustrating. I have a section of my notes I mentioned to you yesterday called the Mickey Rooney Slams Corner. (laughs) And I think that when I kind of can't help myself and go off for like five minutes about a small line change, I'll come out of it with a Mickey Rooney Slams Corner joke just to, to try and buoy it a little bit. But like, there are literally points in this movie where for no apparent reason, they change half a line. And it f- frustrates me so much that like, I'm trying to find the sort of big example of it because, uh, because it's when it's when hermia wakes up they change it for no discernible reason and they change it so slightly that it's just it's it's just meaningless there is entertaining stuff but like ah where is it in my notes why did it disappear these notes are badly organized susan i might have gotten slightly drunk watching this movie over the course of like 4 hours
0: i mean i didn't uh, because I don't drink, but I definitely felt like I had ingested like some bad bread mold and was hallucinating. So, I mean, I guess quickly to like sum up the plot of Midsummer for people who
1: are not familiar with it. Sh- sure.
0: So, it takes place in Athens. There is the king of Athens.
1: Uh, the duke, Duke <laughs> the Theseus. Duke,
0: yes, right.
1: I can break this down really pretty quickly. Cool. <laughs> uh, there's sort of three interlocking <laughs> plot lines to Midsummer. The sort of most traditionally one is that there is a pair of young lovers named Demetrius and Helena, and like Lysander and Hermia. Demetrius has decided he's really big into Hermia, who loves Lysander, and he has gotten Hermia's dad on his side. And so Hermia is going to have to marry Demetrius. Helena still loves him because they had a thing going on before he decided to become a huge prick like this. And (laughs) Lysander and Hermia run off into the woods to try and sort of escape to I think his aunt's house so that they can elope. And Demetrius and Helena follow him for reasons that are clear in the text, but make no goddamn sense in this movie. And it frustrates me. But they sort of interlock with the other two plot lines for a while there and eventually the two couples that are supposed to be the two couples come out of the other side of the woods and get married and there's a lot of sort of comic stuff of the guys falling in love with Helena rather than hermia because of the magic flower we'll get there from the other one of the other major plot lines which is all of the fairies because this has a bunch of magic in it The king and queen of the fairies, Oberon and Titania, are hanging out in the forest outside of Athens, having a big fight over a changeling child, which is a human child that has been stolen into the world of fairies and dressed up in a stereotypical racist outfit in this production. Pretty
0: consistently dressed up in a stereotypically, like, orientalist outfit through most of the Victorian era.
1: Yeah, we really only stopped that in, like, the 70s. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and by Victorian, I mean 200 years. <laughs>
1: yeah, Oberon uses a, a magic flower that has been pierced by Cupid's bow and can make you fall in love with the first thing you see on first... Uh, well, he tries to use it on Demetrius to get Demetrius to stop being such a prick, but his assistant-slash-bizarre-laughing-donkey-man, Puck played by Mickey Rooney in this film, and is not always a bizarre laughing donkey, man. I'm just doing some Mickey Rooney slams early.
0: And not to be confused with Bottom, who actually turns into a donkey.
1: Into a donkey, yeah, (laughs) which is confusing in this movie. But Puck gets it confused and first uses the flower on Lysander, which gets us to, like, wacky comedy of, like, mistaken identity and everybody falling in love with the wrong person and a huge fight scene that this... uh, Fight as in sort of a comic f- argument that this movie totally botches. Yes. The other thing that happens with the magic flower is that Oberon uses it on Titania, and that leads us to our third plot line, which is the rude mechanicals, hardworking merchant men from Athens, who are going to.
0: They're not merchants.
1: Well, some of them are. They're. They're. They're.
0: They're like blue collar workers. Yes.
1: Well. Sort of. Some of bellows meant like the (laughs) yes. I could get into a historical argument of what a blue collar worker would have been considered around here, but yes, they don't just sell stuff; they repair things. They They they're bellows menders, and they make yes. But the point is, they are out in the woods rehearsing a play that they are going to try and perform for the duke's wedding because you would get like a stipend for doing that
0: for life. You get six shillings a day for the rest of your life, which like a lot of money at Elizabeth in Elizabethan England when this was written. In Athens, they did not have shillings.
1: And they go out into the woods. Puck sees what they're all doing and decides to mess with kind of the most arrogant of them, this sort of foolish character, Bottom, uh, who is a kind of Prideful in his lack of acting ability in a way the others aren't, by putting a donkey's head on him or transforming him, it varies from production to production, some amount of into a donkey. He ends up being the first thing Titania sees, and she falls in love with him, and he kind of has this supernatural adventure of having the Queen of the Fairies fall in love with him while not having any fucking clue what the hell is going on. Eventually, that is undone in a scene you have to do very carefully, and this movie doesn't. He wanders back to the city, and then they all perform in the fifth act— the play they have been rehearsing for the Duke and for the two young couples. It's all kind of a commentary on the fifth act of Romeo and Juliet. If you're into Shakespearean meta-comedy bits, then everybody goes off and has a happy ending and Puck does an ending monologue that Mickey Rooney totally botches into <laughs> film. And yeah, I think that covered almost everything.
0: Isn't it common? Called- on Romeo and Juliet, on the end of Romeo and Juliet,
1: there's uh, there's argument about it. This is a thing that my dad firmly believes. The official timeline that most people believe historically says that uh, Romeo and Juliet was written almost immediately after Midsummer, and my dad just feels that he has done Midsummer, the fifth act of Midsummer, and Romeo and Juliet in rehearsal enough that the Pyramus and Thisbe, the play within a play in midsummer is almost exactly the way that the fifth act of Romeo and Juliet goes wrong in rehearsal every single time you fucking rehearse it that it's like almost one to one.
0: I mean Pyramus and Thisbe is the basis for Romeo and Juliet so like that's uh that's I, I like that idea though I think it's apocryphal but
1: I it's uh <laughs> Scholarship could go either way, but the academic consensus is that that is not true, but the academic consensus is not necessarily super duper sound. Because their idea is that, well, because Pyramus and Thisbe is the inspiration for Romeo and Juliet, th- him using Pyramus and Thisbe in Midsummer must have come before because that was what gave him the idea.
0: Of like how to fix it. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: And like, I m- m- maybe, but if you told me I was totally wrong and like made William Shakespeare come back to life and I'm an idiot, I'd believe you. But like, I also don't think it's a really firm case either way and i think this way is more fun
0: that's uh, that, that's fair so we should talk about this movie i i really thought you were gonna nutshell that a lot faster
1: <laughs> i did too but you kind of have to get into all of the three plot lines to get into how this movie botches almost all of them At one point or another, even though James Cagney, who we thought was going to be a big kind of negative mark on this film.
0: He's the best thing in the whole movie.
1: Oh, absolutely. Like this, this bottom is great. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: a back of the fucking box quote for, yeah, for 1935's (laughs) Midsummer, But yes, uh, the way Cagney plays him, which is weird and not. How I usually see the part performed and how I usually see the way the part interacts with other characters is actually really fascinating and really good and does a lot of interesting stuff in a way that some of the other just like, boy, this is a weird way to do it shit in this movie is just... Garbage.
0: I want to talk about Jimmy Cagney first because it's going to be very easy to get what is good about this Mm -hmm. movie out of the way quickly.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
0: So James Cagney is definitely just head and shoulders above everyone else. And interestingly enough, he had never before done Shakespeare and would never do it again after this, uh, which I think is kind of a tragedy. He definitely has that latent violence that every Jimmy Cagney performance always has of like, he's about to punch some. But it really works for Bottom, which I wouldn't have thought. It makes the character, I think, quite a bit more interesting than just that he's kind of a goofball and a fool.
1: Yeah, that he's a fool to the other characters in the play. And not just like the fairies, but like the other rude mechanicals kind of think he's a joke. And, like, usually it's played with him having this weird, like, cult-like thrall over all the other ones, except for, like, maybe Peter Quince, where they're all just super into him and think he's a great actor. And in this one, they're like, ah, this idiot. And it makes the moments of genuine charisma from Bottom, where he kind of has to be charismatic for the plot to work, really interesting and a lot more affecting.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that directors, good directors anyway, always ask themselves when they direct this is whose dream is it and in this case even though i think the movie was not very good and i don't even think that this was intentional it very clearly becomes that this is bottom's dream
1: yeah he becomes uh, perhaps by default more than like dramaturgical like brilliance yeah the (laughs) centerpiece of of this film and the centerpiece of this story I took a class on Shakespeare in college uh, at NYU. This is becoming a weird humble brag, but like the reason I'm bringing it up is because the teacher of that class is sort of pet theories about Shakespeare is that bottom is this fundamental tragic portrayal of the human condition on the same tier as like Falstaff from the Henrys, and I always kind of thought, like, "Mm, that's reaching. And Cagney's performance is the first time I actually kind of go, like, oh, it's there the whole time. It isn't just that weird speech he gives when he wakes up. Yeah. that The essential nature of Bottom is, like, getting to something and wanting something that, like, you can... Eh, he's great in this. It's really good. <laughs>
0: he's so great that when we get to the end of the episode, I'm I'm going to have some trouble. Vera, Vera, Very Teasdale, I have absolutely no idea how to pronounce her name. Mm-hmm. Who's the queen of the Amazons who's getting married to Duke Theseus. I thought she was great. I thought that like she walked that line between threatening and alluring really, really well. It's not a big character, but, you know, she did a good job.
1: Uh, Hippolyta's usually...
0: Hippolyta, y- thank you.
1: It's fine. <laughs> because, especially because in this you hear it like once, uh, because this is before the sort of modern era of almost every production these days double casts Theseus and Hippolyta with Oberon and Titania. And in fact, I don't know how you make a lot of the storylines of this play make sense if you don't do that. Because one of the things is you just end up wondering why at least one of those couples is in the play at all if you don't double cast it. And in this one, you really wonder why Theseus and Hippolyta are even here. But the actors do a really good job with what little of the text they're given to do anything with.
0: Yeah, I thought Ross Alexander as Demetrius was actually quite good, uh, because he managed to bring something to Demetrius where I understood why Helena was still hung up on him. Now it may be that he's just super handsome, and it may be that Dick Powell is so terrible as Lysander.
1: <laughs> I, it, it is fascinating how awful Dick Pi pa- I
0: mean, fascinating!
1: Traditionally, you are supposed to think Demetrius is a cad, because he is, but he's supposed to kind of try and claw his way back to being good enough for Helena. And Lysander is this guy who, you know, maybe you play up the sort of wandering eye metaphor of when the flower makes him fall in love with Helena instead of Hermia, but he's fundamentally a good guy who is devoted to the woman that he loves. And in this, you're like, who is this smug teacher's pet piece of shit that's going to cheat on his fiance the moment he gets a chance? Like, you hate Lysander in this movie.
0: From the beginning, you hate Lysander. He is so so grating in how sweet he is it's like cuz it's not sweetness it's saccharineness, it's artificial sweetness and he absolutely cannot do the verse he like he was saying things that i know i can quote them to you and i couldn't understand him and it wasn't because he was mumbling or anything. It's just he doesn't know what the fuck he's saying.
1: No, I now wish I knew what a flirtation walk without him would look like. Would <laughs> that movie be at all charming? Would I find anything entertaining in that film? Because it, it, he gives off the same vibe in this of just like, you don't fucking deserve her. You're an asshole.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, so you've got dimples and blonde hair. Big fucking deal.
1: I think the like emblematic moment of just why he doesn't work is there's this moment when they're first in the forest where Lysander says, and in truth, fair love, I have lost my way. I'm lost. And he plays it as like this charming, like, well, I guess we got a little mixed up, huh? You still love me thing where it's like, no, dude, you fucked up. Like that's supposed to be what what's supposed to make that kind of charming is that Lysander's kind of a dope. And, and that's humanizing and kind of sweet and instead it's like oh dang it I got us lost don't you still love me and it's like no you're you're a piece of shit
0: <laughs> no, no you're terrible yeah and uh, I think Olivia de Havilland does a good job as Hermia though it is a very dated performance of Hermia it's very melodramatic I don't think you would see that version of of Hermia anymore, but she does act the hell out of it.
1: Yeah, she does. I mean, I don't know how much of her throwing away some of the funniest lines in Act 4 scene 2, the big fight scene, is her fault, and how much is the direction? Oh
0: my god, the big fight scene, they they have... They have them literally talking over each other.
1: It's, it, oh my, I got so angry. I, I like, literally have- the best
0: have, scene in the play!
1: It's the, absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, and, like, they botch every, what, they botch the delivery of I am not so low, I cannot yet claw out your eyes. Yeah, yeah. They, they fucking, every good laugh line, except for cheek by jowl, they step on in that scene.
0: Yeah, thou painted um, maple, thrown out, thrown <laughs> like, the whole thing is so bad. Now, something that I think is actually important to note here, and I'm not forgiving this movie for that because it was really infuriating. The director was German and did not speak English when he directed this movie.
1: Oh, that makes so much sense.
0: <laughs> so he doesn't know that it's wordplay, I guess.
1: Well, and it's also like that makes so much sense in terms of where they choose to save time and how like one of the only things that genuinely is interesting and different about this production is how German expressionist the arrival of the fairies is.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of like ballet and a lot of I mean, the movie is really long and they cut Yeah. three quarters of the text.
1: I I, I wouldn't go that far, but they cut three really integral scenes in their entirety and move the really vital bits of another two into other scenes so that they don't need to do it. I'd say about a third of the play is gone here and replaced with big dance numbers and musical numbers of varying quality.
0: I mean, one of the things that I wrote in my notes pretty early on was just Does this want to be a musical? Does it want to be a screwball comedy, a sinister horror fantasy, or an Isadora Duncan dance spectacular?
1: (laughs) Right. And like-
0: And the answer is yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But just also to to at least close out the young lovers, I really hated this Helena.
0: Oh God, she was horrible. And you have to love Helena. You have to really, really feel for her because she's supposed to be- You know, she has the whole speech about how she's just as good as Hermia is, Mm -hmm. but Demetrius is now set on her instead of on Helena.
1: Yeah, and they cut it. They cut that entire scene.
0: Yeah, and all she does is like, oh, I'm so sad and like slouches and sticks her bottom lip out and is like whining and crying the whole time. I was like, you know what? Maybe this is why I like Demetrius. (laughs) I uh, Yeah, I don't like Helen either. She sucks. And Lysander also sucks. So like Demetrius by default ends up being kind of okay. <laughs>
1: Yeah, in a way that it isn't with Lysander, because honestly, if you kind of have a block of wood as Lysander, that's fine.
0: (laughs) It's certainly preferable.
1: (laughs) Yes, but like, you can't screw up Helena. Helena is one of the great female characters in the canon. She's almost as self-aware about the plight of being a woman as Beatrice. She has some of the greatest monologues about being a woman and being in love in fucking theater history they cut two of the three of them
0: and then they killed all of her good lines
1: yeah the only really good line they kept in is in the field in the town in the square you do me mischief i i fucked that up but that line that's the only really good
0: oh god when she when she does and though though she be little she is fierce i was like uh, no yeah no set every copy of this movie on fire
1: yeah they (laughs) the other thing that sucks about act Four, scene two is they let neither helena nor hermia is conniving at any point in that scene and that's the whole god that's the whole joke But you also don't do the joke setup where they kind of have this charming scene at the beginning about just like being childhood friends and oh, like when we would put flowers in each other's hair and how close we have always been and then turn on each other fucking instantly.
0: Yeah, well, and Helena is, she's so unlikable. She's so unlikable. I wouldn't believe that she and Hermia had been friends forever because... She's horrible.
1: (laughs) I don't necessarily want to throw Jean Muir, who plays Helena, under the bus, because I don't know how much it's just like God with the text and with the direction they're going with here. I don't know how likable you could make Helena. All of Helena's really likable lines are cut. Helena's entire explanation for why she exists as a character is gone. She's just this woman following Demetrius around. yeah, I do think you could have a like a just ball of pure charisma that made that work better than Jean Muir does, but like I don't know what how good that could be.
0: The lovers are like if they're not acting badly, they're being treated badly by the movie. God whatever, throw them out. The fairies.
1: yeah, let's get into it. Let's
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, let's do. Okay, so first of all, I do want to say that the visual treatment of Oberon and Titania's different camps, and they really make a very stark divide between them, which I think was interesting is, you know, Titania is dressed in this, like, glittering beaded fringe thing that kind of makes it look like she's wearing water, And all of her fairy attendants are all dressed in white. And then you've got the changeling child who is dressed like the Sultan in Disney's Aladdin for some reason. Yep. And you know, they all do ballet and like sing and are and do little fairy things that are very light and airy and pretty and sweet. And then you have Oberon's contingent, who literally have bat wings.
1: Yeah, one of the weird things about this is that this movie's take on the Oberon Titania plotline is like, an evil triumphs.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And like, when he comes in night follows him yeah and every shot that oberon is in they like put sparkles or something over the lens so everything looks like there's refracted glitter everywhere it looks like the night sky like it's very dark and then these pops of shimmer everywhere it's kind of it's kind of visually interesting and it's definitely like you were saying very german expressionist
1: it all except for the racist changeling child outfit And the weird fucking cantina scene with the bog witch little people thing that is like, oh yeah, great, we're spending five minutes on this memorable character from Midsummer.
0: Oh yeah, see, I even had forgotten about that, but that is weird because they do have like the bog witch and then they've got these like seemingly independent, like not connected to either party sort of goblins.
1: Yeah, that hang out with the changeling child, but just for this one scene. But also, it kind of does look visually cool, like the rest of it, so I'm like, fine with it. But then Titania opens her mouth and the whole fairy plotline is ruined.
0: Oh, God. Yeah, there is no way that that little... Hi, and sweet! Girl is any match for Oberon. How is this even a fight?
1: There is nothing threatening or powerful about Titania in this, which you can't do that. She cannot be this good, sweet, innocent being of purity, because then, God, what Oberon does to her is so fucking monstrous which, by the way, the movie doesn't want it to be, seemingly, because it cuts all of Oberon's most vicious lines.
0: There's a strong argument to be made that Oberon is actually pretty monstrous because he's taking away her consent and, and everything else.
1: Sure, absolutely.
0: Which I'm not saying is okay, but it is in the context of the two of them basically being at war. Yeah. And there is no way that this woman uh, could have been the general of a fairy army. <laughs>
1: no there's just so many ways this plays badly to have this like battle of lights and darks thing that works really well visually but just unbalances the the whole play and also just isn't a very good performance from Titania it just makes her do everything like this and I'm Glinda the Good Witch for every line and blah 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 blah, and it's super boring
0: yeah but like Glinda the Good Witch could whip out some magic and like fuck you. You up.
1: Well, right, but like <laughs> That's the, like, the wicked Glinda the Good Witch. Like, this is the, like, actual, like, this is the Wizard of Oz film Glinda the Good Witch that's just like, now I gotta go in my bubble. Bye. Anytime I could do something useful, I'll be leaving now.
0: Yeah, but she was pretty thrilled about somebody getting a house dropped on them, so, you know. That's fair. And then there's Puck.
1: Oh, Christ fucking God. (laughs) Mickey Rooney is the single worst Puck I've ever seen in my life.
0: Ever. 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 And again- I haven't seen two dozen but i've seen probably five
1: (laughs) i could do a top 25 i've seen at least three other productions where a kid does this so it's not just that it's a kid doing this don't tell me it's just that he's a little kid i've seen a little kid play puck and he can he can do it without doing these weird weird choices now if you told me the director made him suck this much i'd get on board with that maybe but like god does he suck
0: Oh, he's so bad. So Mickey Rooney, first of all, for those of you who, like me, think of Mickey Rooney as being really old and on 60 minutes, was 14 and reads as about 8 in this film. Would you say that? I think he reads as like he's a hyperactive 8-year-old.
1: Yeah, I mean, he is definitely supposed to be prepubescent.
0: And it's not that he's like an old grumpy man, which would be a really funny choice for Puck, by the way. I mean he's absolutely dreadful. He screams all of his lines.
1: This is one I will not fully blame on him, but for some reason this movie thinks it's alternately hilarious or a really good like r- metaphor for magic to have Puck whenever someone is speaking a line near him go. Back to them. Like, whenever one of the young lovers says a line, he just says nonsense words in the same meter back.
0: Or he just repeats exactly what they just said. Yeah. There's another scene where that happens.
1: He has a terrifying goat, like, donkey laugh that he does for no... no explainable reason
0: he's the elementary school kid who like every time that you tried to have a conversation would just be like and you're like "Uh, uh, okay i get it you're making fun of me can we uh, never mind there's no fucking reasoning with you at all
1: (laughs) right it's that it's that crossed with that thing where they want to have a cute kid breakout character in a movie or TV show. It's like he has catchphrases and like they all suck. It's like they're trying to make him Stephen Urkel of Midsummer Night's Dream. (laughs) Which, by the way, while I was watching this, one of my Mickey Rooney slams in the Mickey Rooney slams corner is... Genuinely a better idea than this Puck would be a week-long family matters event where they just did midsummer with Stephen Urkel as Bottom and Stefan Urkel as Puck. <laughs> that would be that would be better than the choices this movie is making around Puck.
0: I mean wh- was Jackie Cooper busy? Like wh- I don't <laughs> Why did they cast Jackie Cooper? Jackie
1: Cooper would have fucking killed it. Yeah. Because because the Jackie Cooper thing is Puck. Yes. It is like, oh God, I got caught doing this thing again. Shit. Well, what's next? And instead, it's just, uh
0: He's like feral. And I don't mean that in a like, oh, he's wild like a fairy way. It's, it's I mean, he's like a, a rabid dog. It's so bad. And I can't, it's, I, I keep stretching for similes here, but I don't feel like I could really convey how bad it is.
1: No, one of the things is I, I, in texting about how goddamn weird this movie is to my dad last night, I ended up inadvertently convincing him he needs to rewatch it. And he probably does. We'll get around to whether you, the listener, do.
0: Wait, does your dad like this movie?
1: No, he hasn't watched it. And they're like, well, there are interesting choices in this. I have like, I have been to worse Midsummers than this movie.
0: Wow, I have not. So I feel lucky.
1: (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen a worse (laughs) Puck, but I've seen productions that work generally worse than this one does. And I think there are interesting things in this. Not just James Cagney, but, like, predominantly James Cagney. But there are interesting things about this production for my father to watch. But just, it's such a bizarre choice of how to do Puck. And it isn't a consistent bizarre choice. He is, like, four different bizarre characters for whatever the scene needs.
0: Well, it's not necessarily what the scene needs.
1: <laughs> well, right. Whatever the scene has Puck do, I guess, is more, more of... What I mean?
0: I really do think that there is something to be said for making the fairies sinister and insidious because they are these things that are like they're forces of nature and they're supernatural and they are essentially amoral they don't have the same they're not bound to the same ethics as humans are. And I've seen productions where that happens and it works really, really well, and you end up with actually a quite dark midsummer. But this is not that. Because <laughs> it's not justified.
1: No, and Puck never seems threatening like it he just seems like this goddamn thing you have to deal with.
0: Yeah, like I'm not scared of him scheming. I'm scared that he is going to like break the furniture if I let him into my house or like god forbid I had to eat in a restaurant near this child.
1: <laughs> right. Like they're, they're... He's
0: scary in that way.
1: <laughs> I just can't stand him. He've, every scene he's in is terrible.
0: I feel like you should read off of your list of Mickey Rooney Slams.
1: Sure. Uh, Mickey Rooney Slams Corner. Number one, and you thought you couldn't stand him on 60 Minutes. <laughs> Number two, if this kid was a changeling child, I'd give him up immediately, no matter how devout a votress in my order his mother was. Number three... <laughs> Never got why Hermia thought it was such a big deal to go to the woods outside Athens after dark until I heard this motherfucker say he was that merry wanderer of the night. (laughs) Number four. I thought Bottom was the half-donkey character in this play, but this kid's laugh says different. (laughs) Number five. When you hear this Puck say he'll put a girdle round the earth in 40 minutes, you're like, "Mm, that seems like a long time to spend with you, kid. Can you make it 20? (laughs)
0: That's the best one
1: so far. Six, a joke around this weird baby talk thing he does with Hermia I hate so much. I don't have one yet. (laughs) Seven, on the one hand, the part where he trips all the rude mechanicals kind of sucks, but on the other hand, he seemingly does that by having them all kick him in the head. So maybe it's the best part of the movie so far. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever wanted to see violence enacted on a child before. It's actually like my number one thing that I that like really, really makes me uncomfortable in movies is like just even the threat of violence to a child. And in this, if like everyone had taken turns punching him in the face, I would have been like, yeah, this is a good movie. Yeah,
1: no, it's genuinely like after the first one trips, when the second one trips, you're like, are they all kicking him in the head? Am I going to get to see them kick him in the head? (laughs) Number eight. Weird that he decides to fuck with Bottom for his acting when Bottom's a better actor than he is. <laughs> number nine. The, number nine is just the Family Matters pitch I was giving you earlier, and the only joke is that you would agree <laughs> that that is better.
0: I do, in fact.
1: Number ten. In the chase scene, when he's mimicking both De- Demetrius and Lysander, he manages to be a worse Lysander, and that's really <laughs> saying something.
0: It's like the only time that Lysander looks good by comparison.
1: Yeah. Number 11. I genuinely believe it took Mickey Rooney that long to figure out that two of both kinds make up four.
0: You should explain that for people who haven't seen the movie. Uh,
1: th- he has a line. Most of these are deep cut Shakespeare jokes, and I'm very sorry. But he has a line of God, what is, what's the setup to it?
0: Uh, you know it better than me. I
1: do. But it's it's I'm trying to just f- remember it from the meter. It's like two and one come one more, two of both kinds make up four, because he's been trying to tire out both pairs of young lovers. And the only important part for this bit is that he ends that line with two of both kinds make up four. And Mickey Rooney really makes a goddamn meal out of Puck figuring out that two of both kinds make up four. Like, spins a solid five seconds trying to count to four.
0: On his fingers, of course, because... Uh...
1: Otherwise you don't get the joke. <laughs> it's too subtle. <laughs> And finally, number 12, this shadow has offended. That's, yeah. That's my Mickey Rooney Slams Corner. Yeah,
0: I really feel like, had I but slumbered there while Mickey Rooney did appear, I would be super yeah. angry.
1: Yeah, that's not a good enough excuse. Yeah. This is all Which a dream is like, is still like, how dare you?
0: <laughs> yeah. How very dare you?
1: Invading my dreams with this.
0: One last thing before we hopefully leave Mickey Rooney as Puck behind forever. I really thought through the whole thing, how is he going to pull off the end? (laughs) Right. You you know, I was like, he's so bad. He's so bad. And then I thought, well, maybe they'll do something where they like, where they give it to somebody else because it doesn't in the context of this play or this play of this movie specifically and i would argue like any production of it it doesn't necessarily have to be Paku delivers that it's not like a character interaction with anyone i think it's best that he does under most circumstances i was infuriated by his delivery of the last speech it's So bad.
1: It's, it's terrible.
0: It's like listening to a child botch a nursery rhyme. And to be fair, it's not an easy speech because it does rhyme so perfectly that there is a tendency to automatically like just go line by line instead of thought by thought. But like that's, that's what you do in rehearsals is figure out how to make that work. And not only does he botch it horribly, but it becomes nonsensical. It's just him saying words to get to the end of the thing where the rhyme happens.
1: Oh, speaking of, uh there is, i have a request for our audience, which is there is a uh very weird and bad Mickey Rooney acting choice around the start of Act Four, where I think it's when he's turning uh, bottom back from a donkey. He just lies on the ground and starts like slamming his feet on the floor and going ba da 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 ba da ba 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 At And if you could cut in, I'm a scat man, right at the end of that, I would really appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Oh, but now you're asking them to watch this.
1: Uh, That's fair. That's fair.
0: I don't want to do that to our dear listeners. So yeah, Puck, we can now put in the trash can where he belongs. Yeah. And just like one last thing on the fairies is there is a lot of impressive for the time special effects that happen here the dance numbers are choreographed by nijinsky's sister so they are they're legit dance numbers i mean they're like seven minute long contemporary ballet but
1: i genuinely love the design of oberon in this if somebody wants to rip this off and bring modern dramaturgy to it i ain't mad it's really good.
0: I really enjoyed the sparkles that were overladen every time that he was on screen. And then when they have this whole thing where they like take the changeling and then they have this huge shot where they like unfurl this black train that like brings night over the whole forest. It was really impressive. But it was, like you said, evil trial.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, v- yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is super, super weird, or at least from a modern perspective, the way that plays is very different. I want us to sort of finish off briefly, the the sort of rude mechanicals plotline, and then kind of have the equivalent of like a spoiler corner where I just go into all of my weird textual nitpicks, because I have a bunch of them and I think I can lightning round them pretty fast the same way I did with the Mickey Rooney slams. Cool. I want us to sort of talk about the ups and downs of the Pyramus and Thisbe, the Act 5, because that's kind of the last outstanding thing to talk about, I think.
0: One of the things I found really interesting about this movie... And this version of Midsummer is that because they cut or like intersplice or have people talk their lines over each other in certain scenes, it feels like a really unusual amount of time is dedicated to the performance of this bad play. Yeah. As far as like the percentage of time dedicated to what is essentially like a pretty short joke in the full production of this play becomes like...
1: A large percentage of the movie. (laughs) Well, it's also weird because in most productions I have seen, not all of Pyramus and Thisbe is played for comedy. Right. So then even less of act five is this weird comic interlude, because usually either like flute or bottom or both or the lion or something is like strangely affecting. And you kind of have this moment where everybody was laughing and now they're like, wow, that really makes you think and like this none of that just it's it is straight up a comic interlude for 15 minutes at the end of this film and you realize how friggin weird that is
0: i've always thought that the players play at the end it's a little bit self-serving because it does have that thing of like oh yeah you think everything is goofy here well remember the magic of theater boom somebody's good in this play but also like i'm a theater dork so like <laughs> it gets me yeah it gets me
1: yeah it works on- works on. me every time.
0: And this was just like, watching a bad theater production is funny for a five minute sketch. And then it's just like, oh, God, we're watching bad theater.
1: You've got to come up with so many bits to kill time if all the parts of Pyramus and Thisbe are supposed to be funny, because otherwise, it's the same joke over and over again, like two or three times. So you've got to come up with some staging bits to differentiate shit, which they kind of do, but it's not fully successful. The sort of laugh track they do of other characters within the movie becomes really grating after a while. It's just not entirely successful. Cagney's good in it. All the mechanicals really are giving it their all. But it's just, you just can't, it's just weird. It's just weird and unbalanced to have this 15 minute bad play joke. At the end of the film.
0: Well, and particularly in the the way that it's done where everybody is laughing at them in a really mocking way, and then they're all just like milking it for more. No one's taking offense. It's like they all realize how bad it is and they're like, let's let's make it worse. It's bizarre.
1: Okay, I want to get through these really fast because they're they're really just for me I know and I'm sorry, but I have to. How many are there? I think about a, a, about as many as there are Mickey Rooney slams
0: All right, go for it
1: and they're various levels of incredibly specific uh One is the after the big Liz Egyptian Rome party sequence at the beginning of the film. What you can't do that and then still have Theseus immediately say, stir up the Athenian youth to merriment. You just did that. They were, they were all like cheering and having a big party.
0: They all sang like in unison. Well, no, I mean, they were singing in harmony, but like everybody was singing.
1: They move all of Theseus's like big pronouncements about the law and how. Hermia has to obey the law over to Hermia's dad so that you don't dislike Theseus, and you can't fucking do that because it's the central conflict of the play. I do have a note here that the snake dress that Hippolyta wears owns though that that it's just fucking rad as hell.
0: Oh my God, it's so cool.
1: The scene in the throne room where they update Theseus on the whole situation with the young lovers, it was supposed to be all the stuff from the earlier scene with the dad was supposed to be in that scene. It weirds me out. They botched the I have a beard coming line in the first scene with the rude mechanicals. (laughs) Oh, also Uh, do put the cantina music from Star Wars under the changeling child scene, please. (laughs) To speak truth, I have forgot our way is not charming, which I mentioned earlier. They have him sing as a song the like two bosoms and one troth line, which is from like an act and a half later, and then have him say that line. And it's super weird, both because as a song, it doesn't rhyme. Yeah, He's just singing a phrase. And then it steps on a really good, charming scene where Lysander is trying to get Hermia to sleep right next to him because he wants to get laid. And Hermia's like, mm, let's wait until we're married and trying to let him down easy. And it's charming, but it's botched by the weird choice to make it this sing-songy thing. They cut uh, Oberon announcing that he is invisible, which is, he literally says, I am invisible in the play. And so he's just standing there in the middle of this scene. And you're like, why the fuck is no one talking about this bizarre tree man? <laughs>
0: With, like, glitter all around him.
1: Though I do have to say that the moment where Helena does the, in the Fields You Do Me mischief line, Oberon has the most, and that's the T facial expression of, like, ooh, girl. <laughs> uh, and it's great. They bizarrely cut the end of Oberon putting the flower on Titania's eye with they cut the last line of that scene when you wake it is your dear wake when some vile thing is near is the end of that scene and it's fucking savage as shit and they just don't have the balls to do it because they don't want to make Oberon or Theseus bad guys and they are bad guys and like it fucking sucks None of the lines they make into songs rhyme, and that is a war crime, is a note I have in here.
0: (laughs) Throw them in the hay!
1: (laughs) Never really realized Lysander tells her to kill herself if he cheats on her before the production I saw where he seems, like, inevitably going to cheat on her. So, like, there is a point where they are going to sleep, and, like, it is literally the line is something like... And die the death if ever I, would like, am untrue. (laughs) You're immediately like, that's a terrible thing to say to her, you cheating bastard.
0: To be fair, he doesn't cheat on her willingly.
1: Uh, Sure, but in this one you think he would. First You definitely think this Lysander would just cheat on Hermia, I think.
0: I feel like this Lysander is trying to elope with Hermia just to prove that he can.
1: Right. And that's why I feel like, it's not with Helena.
0: Just anybody.
1: But I do feel like that marriage lasts six months and then he's <laughs> like banging the maid. Oh, God, this one drove me insane. When Hermia wakes up, she sort of narrates this semi-prophetic dream about a snake eating out her heart. Mm -hmm. And for some reason in this production, they make that line end with, And you sat smirking, Lysander, you sat smirking at my agony. It's you sat smirking at her cruel prey, which both fits the meter and is fucking metal as hell. So I don't know why they changed it. They fuck up, tie up my lover's tongue as a punchline because they don't have Titania be annoyed with Bottom.
0: They don't have her be annoyed with anything. She's not annoyed that Oberon is trying to steal the Changeling. She's not annoyed. She should be angry about that, but she's not even annoyed.
1: (laughs) Yeah. One more of these I can't be bothered to find because I have spent too much time on this. But the last one that is actually vaguely interesting, because I'm sure it's a haze Code bit, is that they cut the dirtiest joke in Midsummer, And I love it. Usually the line in Pyramus and Thisbe is that they have... The two young lovers kiss through the wall, who is being played by a third character, who just kind of holds out their hand. And in this one, they have, oh, kiss me through the hole in this rough wall. I kiss the wall, not your face at all. And the actual line is, I kiss the wall's hole, not your face at all, which is such a good, like, fucking... The Hayes Code can't have that because that's a dirty joke, but it's not actually a dirty joke. You just have a dirty mind, you pervs.
0: It's a dirty joke.
1: Oh, it's a dirty joke. But like, it but like, letter of the law, spirit of the law. And yeah, that's, that's it. That's my last fucking nitpicky problem with how they fucked up the text of this. I have larger things if you want to fucking email me about how they cut Hermia's and Helen is seen together or how they cut the start of act five, which sucks because that's where Demetrius redeems himself. But I will fucking shut up now so that we can rate this movie and go on to next week where hopefully we will do a normal episode. I'm so sorry, everyone. So
0: we, uh, uh three,
1: I'm going to go four. And here's my argument. Okay. A whole third of this is good because bottom.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then above that, there's the design of the fairies, which is also good. And that gets us up to a... Honestly, that might get us up to a five, but then you go back down to a four because of the terrible changeling child racist. Is that supposed to be Indian outfit?
0: Yeah, I mean, I... I think that production-wise and technically that this movie has, even though a lot of the special effects are very dated, they still look cool as shit. I mean, like, it's the sort of thing where we all know how they do that now, so, like, the, I guess the magic, quote-unquote, is gone, but, you know, it still looks good. Like, aesthetically, it looks really cool. So that's really, like, where most of my points come from, and then, like, top it off a little bit with Jimmy Cagney, Also, there's an actual bear in it, and,
1: uh... Oh god, I'd forgotten the actual bear, which also steps on and ruins a Helena joke, but a bear is cool, so it's hard to say.
0: Yeah, so I'm always gonna give one point for a bear. (laughs) Live or a costume, doesn't matter. If there's a bear, it will get a point
1: for me. That's fair.
0: But, yeah, I mean, the cutting up of the text to the point where it doesn't make any sense the terrible portrayals of most of the characters and then uh, mickey rooney who is like in a category by himself like it's not just a terrible portrayal of a character it's actively blood boiling how bad he is
1: yeah christ yeah
0: so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna say a four we'll go with a four
1: yeah uh, yeah one
0: point for the bear i'll give it a four should you watch this movie Good God, no.
1: Yeah, no. I. I. There's.
0: Even the good things are not worth watching this. If someone. Has already gone out and made like a fan edit of this where they just excise every scene that Mickey Rooney is in. Like, not just shots of him or his speaking lines, but like the whole scenes in which he appears. Yeah. That, that might be worth watching.
1: Here's what I'll say. If you've never watched Midsummer before, don't watch this movie. Go see a production of Midsummer. If you've seen Midsummer five times before, don't watch this movie. If you've seen Midsummer 10 times before, Don't watch this movie. If you've seen Midsummer 15 times before, don't watch this movie. But if you've seen Midsummer 20 times before, you should start considering watching this movie because it has some interesting things that it does. There's a couple of good line readings, and Jimmy Cagney's good. Otherwise, don't watch this movie.
0: some interesting design choices you know i i mean i honestly think that the only i don't even think like if you've seen midsummer 20 times you should see it
1: that's fair if
0: you are doing research because you plan to direct or design midsummer in a production you should see this at least to like maybe get inspiration but also to uh, more than anything to learn like what you should not do, and how important certain lines are, because when they're destroyed or excised or delivered badly, it really fucks up this play. <laughs> so, on to next week. At long last, we are watching Mutiny on the Bounty, which did win Best Picture and stars Charles Lawton because three movies this year did, but also Clark Gable. So how bad could it be?
1: (laughs) That's the kiss of death this year, Susan. You know that. You know that asking how bad it could be in 1935.
0: Listen... I will watch Clark Gable in the worst movie ever made. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, well, we 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 may. So
0: I mean, it's supposed to be a good. It's supposed to be a good movie. I mean, I guess all of these are supposed to be a good
1: movies, right? we this project is watching movies nominated for best picture. That's
0: true. We're not watching like <laughs> the Razzies, though. I'm starting to feel like that would be a more enjoyable project.
1: Yeah. Um. But yeah, no. Hopefully, th- this one won. So didn't it? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Uh. So hopefully, that's uh, that's a mark of something.
0: Yeah, but we've watched a lot of shitty movies that won. Yeah,
1: that's fair.
0: I mean, like Cimarron won.
1: Christ. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. For sure. For sure.
0: No matter the situation, I get to look at Clark Gable. <laughs>
1: You're going to be saying that in such a defeated tone at the start of next week's episode. Yeah. You're going to be, it's going to be like defensive. Like, listen, no matter what happened, I got to look at Clark Gable. Okay. Oh, I
0: don't know. He doesn't have a mustache in this movie. <laughs> oh, all right. I'm not looking less forward to this.
1: Wasn't Clark Gable in Lives of a Bengal Lancer? Haven't we already watched Clark Gable in, worst, in the worst movie ever made?
0: No! No! No, Who's the handsome boy he was in not? It's Gary Cooper.
1: It's Gary Cooper. Okay.
0: (laughs) Do not besmirch Clark Gable's name.
1: Well, first of all, Gary Cooper. Why are we besmirching Gary Cooper's name by accurately pointing out he was in that movie? We're
0: not besmirching. He made that choice.
1: (laughs) Well, did he? The studio system. Can you really blame him? that's,
0: That's fair. That's fair. They owned them.
1: But yeah.
0: All right. So until next week, when I talk a lot about how handsome Clark Gable is. This has been a thing.
1: Yeah, this was a movie and two-thirds of a play that that movie was based on.
0: Uh <laughs> oh, goodbye, everybody.
1: Bye, everybody.
0: So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends,
1: and Robin shall restore Amen.